everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. I know that we've said the worst things, but I just wanted to get a few things straight. Dad said that it would be me. If we want to hold on to this company for us, we have to go into battle with our own version of the future with the king. We're gonna cut shit close to the bone. We're gonna get right fucking in there. It's gonna get nasty. Okay, buckle up. Oh, the acting, the music, the writing. That, of course, is Succession, which had its finale this week. And I am so excited to have Jay Smith Cameron, Jerry, in the back room this week. We're going to get to her in a second. But first, I want to thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com, and we'll perhaps read a few next time. And if you like the pod, please follow or subscribe to be notified every time we post a new episode. So let's bring on Jay Smith Cameron. She is an Emmy and Tony-nominated stage, film, and television actress who most recently starred as Jerry Kelman on HBO's Succession. She can be seen starring in the Peacock film The Year Between, as well as the miniseries Waco, The Aftermath, on Showtime. Her film credits include Vengeance, 84 Charing Cross Road, Harriet the Spy, You Can Count on Me, and Margaret. On TV, she's had recurring roles on Rectify, True Blood, and Divorce and has appeared in countless other shows. Her Broadway credits include Lend Me a Tenor, Our Country's Good, Night Must Fall, and After the Night and the Music. Her extensive off-Broadway work includes As Bees and Honey Drown, for which she won an Obie Award, Buddy Mears, Sarah Sarah, The Starry Messenger, Sorry, Juno and the Paycock, and Peace for Mary Francis. Jay, welcome into the back room. Hi, thanks. Good to be here. It is a real treat to have you here with us today. That's because Succession ended this week, so it's very timely. And i um, really looking forward to talking with you. Thank you. Before we get into your life and career and the show, I just want to speak to Jerry for a minute, if I can. And I want to apologize. <laughs> I want to apologize on behalf of those Roy kids, who uh, their behavior over the years really disgusting. You didn't deserve it. They didn't deserve you. They certainly didn't appreciate you. So I know they would never apologize. So I just wanted to do it for them. So putting that out. Thank you. Thank you. So you were born in Louisville, Kentucky. You grew up in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, That's correct. How much of a Southern girl are you still? It's been a long time since I lived in the South. I've been living in New York for over 40 years, I think. So I do still identify with certain Southern things. Um, but, you know, your, one's childhood is such an impressionable time, obviously. And there's just a lot about the South. And also my father had grown up in the South and his siblings. And I would say it's like part of my inner sanctum cupboard, you know, back in the back of my psyche kind of thing. You could take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy kind of thing. Like, are there foods or music or some cultural things that kind yeah, of yeah. remain part of your DNA over the years? Yeah, I love Southern cooking. I'm a sucker for it. It's not very good for you, so I don't have it very often, but um, I love fried okra and fried chicken and sweet iced tea and pimento cheese and chicken and dumplings and all that stuff. I just remember like when I was in high school, I remember like being outside a lot, like 
parties would be outside and people would be drinking beer shots and having smoking cigarettes and there'd be horses there and like meadows and like my best friend in high school had a horse my memories of high school are being like out in nature Mm -hmm. more than I would now be and then also I think my best friend Sarah Huntington and I we used to play all these pranks that were only funny to us that we only knew what they were about and it was fantastic because I don't know it's just they were just like my husband Kenny um he's a screenwriter and uh Playwright, he's he's always saying you should write the story of your adolescence with Sarah. We just had a sense of humor that no one else got, and we just did all these like. But I just remember being outside at night a lot, like out in the country, and I don't know. It's it's like a it's a nice memory. And when you were growing up, there's always kids who get out of school and then they get a job and spend the rest of their lives in their hometown. And then there's those other kids. They're like, I can't wait to get out of this town. And there's something better for me out there. Yeah. You know, were you that kid? Yes, I was definitely that kid. I think my, my sister was too. My big sister also became an actress for a while. And she had an, another calling that she was really interested in and very good at, which was teaching. She was just really good little kids. So she shifted into teaching. But I remember she took me to New York for the first time when I was like 13 we stayed in this really low rent hotel. And um, this was before ATMs. And like she had brought up money. Like she she brought traveler's checks. Do you remember those? Oh, like yeah. he was like maybe 22. Like she wasn't very old. So we stayed in that Taft Hotel, which isn't here anymore. And we ate in diners and we saw a bunch of Broadway plays. And I really remember that. Um, that was incredible. And I remember we shopped in Macy's, but we could only go in the bargain basement, just these big wooden bargain bins. And I remember I got this mini dress. I remember wearing it my last day in New York and we ran out of money. So literally we just bought a loaf of bread the last, the last day we were in New York, we just ate slices of white bread. Were you always bitten by the acting bug? Did you know at a young age that that's what you were going to do? At a pretty young age. My, my big sister, as I said, is like, um, nine and a half years older than me. And she definitely seemed like the actress in the family. And I studied violin. I studied music uh, first or second grade all through senior in high school and went to string camp and was in, you know, a couple of different orchestras and played in the chamber group and had two lessons a week towards the end and like an hour of practice every day. And it was intense. And I was not passionate enough about it. I didn't practice enough. I didn't apply myself enough. It wasn't my thing. And I was kind of a closet actress, like through Joanne, my big sister. Mm -hmm. She and I would read scenes from plays. Like I really did have this like fantasy life as an actress. But in South Carolina, then there were no community theaters. And eventually when I was in high school, there were like the equivalent of off-off-Broadway, like little theaters in Greenville. But the nearest regional theater would maybe be the one in Atlanta or the one in D.C. You didn't see anyone becoming a professional actor in my mm-hmm. state. And then, you know, the ignorance that I had about it was like, well, you could move to L.A. and try to be on a sitcom or well, I love plays. And I was like, or you could try to get to New York and be in plays. And so that was my love and passion. And I started acting in high school in spite of myself. And I got to go to um, special arts. It was like arts high school that opened when I was a senior. So you did your academic classes at your high school, but then they bust you and had 
um, really intense theater class. And you got into so acting in high school on a dare, correct? That's right. <laughs> my, my best friend's big sister was in Spanish, too, with me. And they, they were going to do Anne Frank in the drama department, Diary of Anne Frank. And they really didn't have an Anne Frank in mind. So they were really hoping the auditions would bring something. And she knew my big sister was an actress and she just guessed it about me. And she like nudged me and I was really terrified, but excited. And I went and auditioned and got the part. And um, uh, of Anne I Frank. Like my of Anne Frank. Nice. And then that, I feel like that changed my life. Like wow. that same year I got contact lenses, you know, like I had, I had just had a whole transformation. Went from being a shy, bespectacled violinist to a leading actress of Greenville High School. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I dug up a quote where you said, I was a shy kid who wore glasses and played the violin and didn't have a best friend. So it was kind of rocky. No, I, mean, I didn't. I didn't have a best friend growing up. I didn't have one best. You know, like we'd live somewhere and I'd have somebody in like second grade who I played with. But we moved around a bit. Right. So I would be in different schools. I was always starting over. I was a side kid with no best friend until it all happened at the same time. Mm -hmm. Like theater, um, my best friend, all that happened around the same time. And you said the best advice you ever got, someone said to you, be bold? Yes. My big sister came to see me in a play, like my first professional play. And it was in uh, Coconut Grove. And... um she was like really honest with me. She said, you're very real and you're very believable, but you're being so modest and careful. Like kids right out of drama school are like purists for being really real. And this was a big stage in a large theater. And she was like, do everything you're doing, but just be bold. And the character was sort of bold. So I could do that in the character. But it was something that I would tell myself after that, like when in doubt, you know, like don't confuse being realistic and naturalistic with being small or tiny, you know, but in real life, people can be bold and passionate about things. And plays are usually about important moments in people's lives when they're being passionate. So, you know, and, and it's being, it. being bold also about giving everything of yourself, of putting it all out there, of not being inhibited in any way. I find often when I watch a performance, you kind of know when a performer does that and you know when there's something that's kind of holding them back and maybe not with the truly yeah. successful, famous ones, but people who are still trying to make their way in the world, you kind of get a sense that they're just not leaving it all on the stage. Right. Yeah, that's a good observation. I don't know that I always achieve that be bold, be bolder mm -hmm. thing, but I try to, you know, that's just in the back of my head. Like, for instance... Kieran Culkin in the role of Roman was so unchecked. He was just so free. Mm. But the character totally. says everything they think with no check. You right. know, like, so his character, it was a little all or nothing, in my opinion. Like, to be Roman Roy, you had to have no filter, you know, no inhibitions. And so as an actor, I was envying him because he just seemed so uninhibited and so released. Like, I remember doing this play and we were talking about being relaxed on stage. It was like early performances and we were like, we're just not relaxed yet. And the director said, I don't think you should ever really be relaxed on stage, but you should try to be released. And I mean, Kieran, it was very, I mean, maybe he's always like that as an actor. He's like that as a person too. He's a little bit like Will. And he's a little 
cheeky. I have so much respect for actors because 90% of the time, I'm just trying to find how to be me, right? So I think about people who are acting and trying to be yeah. someone else and project that with authenticity. It's hard to imagine not going to that place of full release. Otherwise, it may not be believable. Like in the last season with Kieran, with his character, the funeral and all that, you have to be that person that you're portraying and you can't do it unless yeah. you're well, 110%. I I feel like I'm of this little thought that a good actor, like the people who innately have it in them to be good actors, who are meant to be actors, the raw material consists of a lot of empathy and a lot of being able to put themselves in somebody's shoes. And what develops is an, a real natural curiosity for all kinds of people, like to play, play someone who's very far apart from your own personality, seemingly, and yet you find space for them in your psyche. That's like an innate quality that um that's the number one essential tool is being able to relate to different characters and be willing to get behind their their thinking um and not judge them you know like roman turns out to be quite a scary character in that election episode and kendall very scary character in my opinion all three of them but none of the three actors judged their character they were like that's not me but i'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Like you don't have to prove the character. Like none of the characters in succession were likable characters. I mean, none of them were good people, uh, whatever that is, but they were all interesting. And when you see characters that have a drive to achieve something, that's just very appealing. Logan Roy and Kendall Roy and Roman Roy, they're like anti-heroes. Like you hate them, but you're, you're smitten by their sheer appetite for life or achieving or winning. Not that you root for those characters, but there's something irresistible about them. Sidney Lumet wrote a book years ago where like each chapter is dedicated to one part of the movie business. And there was a chapter on actors and he wrote about Brando and how Brando would, would test his directors. So Brando knew when he was phoning it in and Brando knew when he was giving it 150%. And if he felt he was giving 150%, but the director didn't see it or didn't recognize it or didn't appreciate it, he would phone it in. And I guess the irony is that Brando phoning it in is like still 125. Right, pretty damn good. But I think the audience knows when an actor is just leaving it out there. And that's what sucks you in. Yeah. It almost feels like channeling. Yeah. yeah. Like you're just trying to go on intuition. I think technique is great. You're learning lines and working on the scene at home or in rehearsal if it's a, a play. But then when you go to act it, it's great if you could just not think. You right. know, like Yogi Berra said, I can't think and hit at the same time. Right. Like he had to just use his instinct after a certain point of honing his path. I mean, different things work for different actors, yeah. so no judgment. But I think the ones I always envy and admire and try to be myself is someone who just has developed their instrument in such a way that they can then channel the character and not second guess what they're doing, just, just be in the moment. Right. Who were your early inspirations when you were coming up? Like, who did you look at and think, wow, that person is incredible. I want to be like her or him. Gosh, Annie, there's so many of them and they would change all the time. Like, you know, I remember seeing Sissy Spacek and Deborah Winger and Meryl Streep. And so, so that would be the people that I'd be seeing in movies when I was in high school and college. And they were all amazing. That was an amazing time. But I guess my favorite actor actress of all time might be Judy Dench. Mm. 
um, I mean, I started to say Judy Davis because I also love Judy Davis, but Judy Dench is something that I relate to about her. There's something elemental about her that I just love. And I find that she embodies these characters very fully in this, in the unfailing way. I mean, she's so warm and real. And I just, I don't know, maybe she reminds me of my mother a little bit, but I just love her. <laughs> You've done so much theater. Off Broadway, Broadway, you've won awards, been nominated for so many awards. Uh, uh, you said you could play Shakespeare leads and get amazing reviews at some impressive venue, but then you do Law and Order, and that puts you on the map. That's really interesting. Yeah, uh, quote. Or it just it with shows your the economics of you know, the business. The economics of the business, but also just like one's relatives or neighbors would be like, "Oh, now that's the big time." But in my mind, a career or a resume was distinguished by the great work you'd done, like the great parts you'd played and the people you'd worked with who were great. To me, that was the the really impressive resume. But to lay people, like, oh, she was on television or like, oh, she's made it. <laughs> and Law and Order really underwrote a lot of great actors' theater careers in the 80s. Right. What do you think is the... Thing about theater that is so intoxicating for the actors on stage as well as people in the audience? Well, there's a lot of things about it. I think one thing is that it's just you. You don't have someone lighting you or powdering your nose and you don't have someone editing it so that it's the responsibility of the actors on stage to be disciplined so that the story is told the right way. There's no one to cut to this other actor. Everybody on stage has to help throw the focus to that other actor if it's important. You know, there's that awareness of each other. It's a little bit like playing chamber music and knowing now I have the melody and now I have the harmony. And now this dynamic comes out with this part of the orchestra. I think that's intoxicating because it's like you're in the air traffic control tower you, yourself. It's like a live thing. If you forget your lines, you have to dig yourself out. Sometimes your fellow actors help you or... You know, it's that live component and the fact that you're all in a room together. And there's something about theater, like everybody's there and this big crowd gets quiet and focuses. And there's this sense of shelter that you're in the theater and you're all together in the dark listening to a story. It's very intoxicating. And also, I just think parts for actors seem richer because they get to talk more in plays. Like you get to express yourself more. The story is told differently in television and film a lot, where it's more visual or the location changes very quickly. and there's action sequences that don't exist in plays generally. So it's more about the verbal storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I imagine and there's big differences too in off-Broadway and Broadway in terms of being an actor. I won't say pros and cons or you know, like choosing which of your children you love more, but like that it presents, <laughs> a, it's a, just a different experience for an actor that this could be great yeah. over here and it could also be great over here. What are the reasons why both yeah. of those are so special? Off-Broadway often does the new plays, which are really exciting. Whereas Broadway likes to do a certain kind of show that will appeal to a wide audience and has a certain scale to it. Like musicals do well on Broadway, but if it's not a musical, a play that has some grand scale to it is usually what they go for because of the economics of building a big Broadway house week after week. They're often star-studded and your track each week is much different than off-Broadway. And there's a glamour to being on Broadway, but it's not the same as 
working on a new play and having a really nuanced toned thing that dares to be outside the general appetite, you know, off Broadway will choose more bold or more niche things. Mm-hmm. You get to be in some really interesting plays that take risks and often they're stylized or they have certain elements that are fun and imaginative to play with. And uh, so pay scale is prohibitive. It's really hard to support yourself in any way off Broadway. You have to do law in order to, and you have to be in the occasional Broadway play to have an apartment in any of the boroughs in New York. I mean, it's, it's, it's really hard to make a living. But I think most theater actors would agree that off-Broadway is sometimes more exciting and the audience is closer to you and smaller. It's more intimate. Does that take you back to your roots? Like when you're on a stage off-Broadway, does it feel more like, oh, wow, this is like it was years ago when you were just starting out and sort of bring you back to that period of your life? I think I actually experienced it as a new breakthrough of a new sound barrier. I got pushed in off-Broadway more than any other media to try Mm. different levels of, like, I felt like my craft really got developed off-Broadway. And there's a certain amount of just raw showmanship that high school students have. You almost remember it more when you're on Broadway because it's more of an extrovert act and there's something very intimate and small and real about being off-Broadway. You're just a few feet away from your audience. And uh, they're both great. They're both great. I love it. I haven't done th- theater in a long time. Why is that? I mean, I mean just because you well, can't because of the, uh, contractually or... And then pandemic happened. Right. I did apply the first, uh, right after the first season of Succession. And then on the second season of Succession, I tried to do a play, but I'd just been made a regular. So they just really couldn't promise me that I would be out. I mean, to make a curtain. So uh, I couldn't do it then. And then I just have not, I don't know, I sort of got consumed with other things that came along. But but for the right part, I would love to do a play again. So let's talk about Succession a little bit. This week, I lost Succession. I also last night finished watching Fauda, which I was obsessed with. Mm -hmm. So I'm already feeling that thing of like, what am I going to do without all these people in my life? I can't imagine what it must feel like for you and the other members of the cast when this was your life for five years. It's so much a part of your life and so much a part of the culture. And it's hard to imagine something that was much bigger than that show. And now that it's gone, I know what it's like as a viewer. But what is it like for you as being part of that family? I, yeah, I feel the same way. I felt kind of lost. Like, how do you even pick your next project after you've worked on something that's so singular, you know? Right. Um, we all felt like every department was world-class, like the props were world-class and the costumes and the sound and the camera crew. And the writing is just so different. It's just on a different level. And it was produced so lavishly. What was the magic of that show? I mean, obviously the writing, and I know you're on record saying writing Writing. is everything. It all starts and stops at the writing. But what else is it about that show that ignited so much passion and, and loyalty amongst TV viewers? Well, I'm not sure because I was in the middle of it. So I, w- I don't really have much objectivity about it. But I think it was both a really plot-driven show that you had to wait every week for and that built suspense and it was very cleverly done. Like things weren't obvious. I mean, there's two big functions to TV. And one is when you come home from a hard day's work and you just want to veg out in front of a comedy 
that's a completely viable form of television, right? But then there's like when you're in a pandemic and you're languishing, if there's a really thoughtful thing like Fauda that's got intricate plots and really good characters, really good characterizations that have been really formed, I think that's just so involving and you have to pay attention. And that it's like working a puzzle or something. You have to stay involved. And I think people respond to that. I've always thought audiences don't want to be lazy. I think they want to be smart. You know, they you want can to say be, that about the show to... too. Like it didn't rely on gimmicky stuff like flashbacks. It didn't. It didn't have any sex. I mean, think about that. I mean, for the most part, except for you and Roman yeah. and your phone stuff. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's hard. Had a, cu- a couple of things. Yeah, but just, I mean, it really. I mean. Yeah. Shows very, today, very there's typical. just so much and graphic, and it, yeah, it just I know. really just stood in front on its own with incredible writing and incredible acting and all the other departments you mentioned, and didn't feel the need to be formulaic in the same way that other shows are. Yeah, it was just really unique show. And after the dust has settled, I'd love to follow Jesse around and bug him and ask him a million questions because. I just think it comes down to him in the end. Like he had a real vision about it. And Jesse Armstrong, referring to the creator of the show, um, which is so clever. And he has such a team of writers. Like all the writers that I've gotten to know are all just all wonderful. Really funny, really clever, really hard workers, like really involved. And also it was just such a collaborative show. I've never, ever worked on anything my whole life. That was that collaborative. For instance, when I got my character, which was going to be a man, or just you know, Carl and Frank, and then they were like, "Well, maybe we should sleep some women for the part." So, for instance, they just kind of let me, yeah, they let me kind of create Jerry, and then they started writing towards this character that was forming, and they did that with Greg, and they did that with Roman, and they did that with all the characters. They would kind of lean into our strengths and lean into our own ideas about the character. And they had this trick of leaving the camera roller. And sometimes I think they thought they could use the footage, but sometimes I think they were just like spying on us, like trying to, I I always liken it to watching an animal nature show, like (laughs) National Geographic special on monkeys or something like that. They would just watch us. Let's see what they do when they have the donut lines. Isn't that the genesis of Jerry and Roman and the flirting? Yes. That's how that yes. started. And like the fact that Nick and Matthew McFadden had such chemistry, they really leaned into that. Willa was supposed to be just a recurring part at the beginning. Like supposed to be funny that Connor had a girlfriend experience type date that he hired. And she was all four seasons and ends up marrying him. I mean, that was not planned. And that was a very sweet story. That was about his sweet as fashion can get this it's not a very sweet world sweet and sad at the same yeah. time you know yeah, yeah. Uh, you, uh, your jerry was supposed to not only be a, a man right when you auditioned but you were only supposed to be on it for like four episodes right well that was what i was booked for mm-hmm. and they said like you might show up at the end of the season they were very vague about it turns out they were thinking because there was she of the tom's wedding at the end where or you see all the characters who come to the wedding so I just think they hadn't, on these new characters that had come after the pilot got picked up, they were like, 
thinking as they went. They had to create all these executives and all these people. And there's so many parts of Waystar. There's the cruises, there's the camp, there's the theme parks, there's um, ATN, the the Fox News, you know, mm-hmm. tangent, mm-hmm. Um, and the, all the other media. And so they had to have the feeling of a huge corporation. So they hired all these actors, Dag Mara and me and David Rashi and Peter Friedman and Peter Friedman was already hired. And they had the wisdom, like when one of us did something that was funny or true to us, they were like, oh, so that defines Frank and that defines, so Carl is this way and Jerry is that way. And it was very collaborative. Like they would pick up on our sense of humor and write to it. And it was, it was great. And Sal Matlin always wanted to know our ideas. She would call it before any fitting and go, what are you thinking? What do you think? I think that they should be dressed like to get off the plane and go right into their work. It would always be a discussion. She never thrust anything on us that I know of. Like she was great. She really wanted to know what was in her head. And she was really for unexpected choices. Um, she was a disciple of the great casting designer, Ann Roth, and still is. I think she still works with Ann. But she now has her own estimable costume designer career. And she t- tells this great story about an Ann Roth-designed play where the character has a nervous breakdown, I think, in this one scene. And the costume she happened to have on, she had these really fancy gold designer loafers on. But the director was like, no, so what about that choice for this scene? And Anne Roth was like, she doesn't know she's going to have a nervous breakdown when she got dressed. Mm. And that kind of thinking is so smart. That helps underline the weird event of having something that you don't expect is going to happen happen. It's so clever. It's so intuitively clever. Sometimes people who are really wealthy will wear multi-eaten sweaters. Right. You know? Old money. Or they will just buy incredibly expensive clothes because they can. They're not particularly stylish. They're not, they don't have style in their actual psyche. They're just buying expensive clothes. Well, you'll see women wearing a, a Dolce & Gabbana belt, and it's got that ginormous DNG. And it's like, that's what they're buying. Because they want to project. Yeah, and I think this family was a step beyond that. Like, oh, no, we're not going to flash the label. That's, that's too nouveau. Mm -hmm. Because they made fun of that date who had the large Burberry purse at the wake. Greg's date, do you remember that episode? And everybody made fun of her bag, which was too large. Which I was like, what? What do you mean? And it was something that had come from one of the wealth consultants. They had wealth consultants on that mm-hmm. show. Wow. And they were like, that kind of occasion, you'd either come with no bag or like a little, right. a well, small clot. That's authenticity and that's important. Yeah. It's authenticity, but it's a very subtle thing. But except then they, like, you wouldn't notice that they all had small bags until you see this one girl sticking out like a sore thumb, mm-hmm. her big, she had the big initials logo on her mm-hmm. bag. One of the things I think that made the show so loved is that it was a window into the wealthy world. I even think there's some elements of Trumpiness in there. Ogin is way smarter than Trump is. I mean, Trump's a moron. But if you look at the kids, you got the smart daughter, you got the idiot sons, right? Who who are really nothing without the dad. You got the right. Fox News thing, the Republicanism. Well, a lot of those families have sort of the same, the Murdochs have that configuration, yeah. that element of who will succeed, that succession element. Right. The Redstone family, like these, these patriarchs who do not want to step down. 
And the minute they name or favor an employee or an offspring that, that they think might take over, they start to find fault in them. Right. Like, I feel like that was sort of the yeah. subplot. Of all we, well, if you look at the, the Trump show. family, if it was a show like Succession, Trump would probably appoint Jerry to be the CEO because he doesn't have faith in any one of his idiot kids because Ivanka certainly wouldn't yeah. do it. How surprised were you that Jerry would become a sex symbol? Was that even on the radar when you first started? I still started? don't believe that. <laughs> but it's true. I don't understand that. And I think it's. I got friends who are like, Jerry's hot. Like, that's. Jerry was a sex symbol. Yeah. That's so funny. And by the way, the only character on the show that really wasn't made to be foolish. If you think about yeah. it, the only character that's not foolish. That's right. So the sex symbol thing, like, you, that, was just, that was just not uh, at all something you envisioned. Well, I don't think anyone cultivated that or right. decided that Jerry would turn out to be sexy. I think maybe it's because she so doesn't care. Like she's rude to Roman. I don't know. I don't get it. Well, but it's I'm, like a I'm whole like dominatrixy thing yeah, with her. They're... Like, And he's so like yeah. childish. And the whole role-playing thing, yeah. really interesting for a lot of people. And also the fact that Jerry was a smart, accomplished, capable, overlooked, underappreciated character but not a fool like like the other mm -hmm. not a fool also like still waters run deep like mm. she, you don't know much about her she's very private but the wheels are turning and she's two steps ahead of everyone mentally and that can be very attractive i find that attractive in people but i don't really understand the sex symbol except maybe just that it's a sort of novel i don't i don't know when you said to roman i could have gotten you there if you could play mm -hmm. Jesse Armstrong for a second and play this out, what would that look like? If he had become my um, protege, you mean? When you I, said I could have gotten yes, you there. Gotten him where? How? To the top of his profession. I think because I was like, as a team, remember, he would be flirting and carrying on inappropriately. And I would be like, listen, we together could be quite the team. Like, there's that a scene where I've really fallen out in season three. He's this charismatic, younger, wealthy, good-looking guy with his finger on the pulse of pop culture a bit. And with my experience and smarts together, we would be very formidable um, team. Like if if he listened to Jerry, he could be quite the leader of that company. Like they were CEOs, you know, and he kept posing it too like how about this but then he would send me inappropriate pictures right. and i kept getting mad at him like no brighten up pay attention don't do that right. and don't use that photo sing that keep it in the vault in case you need it use your head you know like like how does this help my best interest right matson refers to the ceo job as as a pain sponge right not really important not really right. qualified in playing out this this narrative with Roman, would he have been a pain sponge? Would you have been the shadow CEO pulling the, the puppet strings? I think that the brief time that Jerry believes in them as a power couple, I think she's like, oh, I'll use this fascination he has for me, whatever this is. I'll groom him into being the perfect spokesperson of this company, and I'll figure out the moves. Mm. And I'll figure out the legalities and I'll figure out the acquisitions and mergers and all that. But I mean, I don't know how much time in the story 
that she believes that. I think by the end of the time in Italy, she's like, fuck you. You know, I told you it was dangerous to have those in your phone. And now you've blown it for yourself and for me. Yeah. So fuck you, you know. He's Don Jr. Yeah, not, not such a leap. No, I think Kendall's more Don Jr. Kendall's more I Eric. Neither one of them. I think Kendall's more Eric. <laughs> really? Yeah, because Eric is I, not Don Jr. He's the more acceptable one. But they're both idiots. And I think that's what you could gross. say about Kendall. I think they're more like the Murdoch boys. Yeah, another good comparison. I mean, that's what everybody thinks it's based on. But I think it's really, like you say, um, an amalgamate of all these different characters. In our final moments, I have a couple of things I want to ask you about. The finale was amazing. I mean, one scene after the other of incredible acting and writing that just brought you to this explosive climax. I kind of knew that Tom was going to be it, but I had no idea that Shiv was going to be the reason why. And I don't think anybody really had a sense of that. It sort of felt like it came out of nowhere. Did you watch the finale in a somewhat similar way that we did? Or did you know about all this stuff weeks in advance? Were you surprised by some of this stuff? Were you in the dark about some of this stuff? Yeah, both. Some things we knew about. I was told from Jesse in the beginning of this, when we started shooting season four, that it was probably going to be talked. He wasn't completely sure. That's what he, that's what his thinking was. So I sort of knew that was coming. And then I remember him saying about in terms of the arc of the Roman Jerry story that he makes this sort of spectacle of himself and his grief at the funeral. And that then though, Jerry and he have a poignant scene where Jerry it tries to be nice to him. And that scene didn't make it into the cut mm. of that. That wasn't even the finale. That was the funeral scene. I need to watch it again because a lot of the cast watched it together in a bar and it was more like a, it was sort of like a party rather than a screen. We weren't really in a screening room. We were like in a bar and we were cheering for each other and laughing. Like, so I kind of really need to watch that again. But like we did alternate things for my character. I had a scene with Tom where he offered me a job. Mm. We did one take where Mark Lylod, the director, had us, after the dialogue was over, just kind of link arms and walk down the hallway, kind of like at the end of Casablanca, when you see Claude Rains and Humphrey right. Bogart mm-hmm. saying, beginning of a beautiful friendship. I right. knew even when we shot that, they weren't going to use that. You know, mm-hmm. they always play that way. Right. So, and, th- and there was a scene where, you know, it does cut to Jerry when he says, Jerry gets it, she's not afraid of the dark, and we know he's going to hire Jerry. Right. And then there was footage we did where, you know, I'm talking to someone, He's talking to Greg, but we kind of make eye contact. And I thought they'd use that. I sort of thought they might not use the scene because it was long. This episode was long. Right. Um, But they didn't use the eye contact when I don't know why. Maybe it was some technical reason. Hmm. I want to ask you something about the finale. Sure. Um, What did you make of the scene when you last see Roman in the bar with the martini reflecting on things? What did you come away with? It was relief. It was satisfaction. It was, it's over. I'm going to get a fuckload of money. I don't have to pretend to be something I'm not. Remember, what did they all say? Yeah. That uh, we're all bullshit. I'm not bullshitting anymore. Like, yeah. it was just him having a drink, smiling, and realizing that from this day forward, life's going to get much better than it was. You know, I don't think he, yeah. he didn't want to be CEO. He wasn't, I mean, it. He was caught up in so many emotions about his dad and all, and his he, brother. It was he just didn't a, want it. He didn't want it, but he didn't want his siblings to get it. <laughs> That's what they all suffered from, you know. Right. Well, that was like, their dysfunction, right? 
Um, yeah. The last thing I want to do, if you're up for it, is is a little like a, a what if lightning round. If you were writing the future, the sequels, the, what would happen going forward? And these are basically yes or no questions. Um, does Matson ruin the company? Yes. <laughs> does Tom fail as CEO? No. So Jerry, well, how can one be true if the others aren't true? I don't know. I don't. No, I think can, he's can too much of a people pleaser. He's such a people pleaser. I don't think he's going to fail. Does Jerry um, end up at some point as CEO of the company? No, I think she dodges. She, she just thinks that's a bullet to dodge. Frankly, I, th- I don't think she might be an interim CEO. Do Jerry and Roman have any kind of sexual interaction again? Yes, <laughs> I think so. Good answer. Do the kids ever kiss and make up? No. I think they start talking again, but I think there's no love lost anymore. Do Shiv and Tom have their baby and live happily ever after, or are they in divorce court in six months? I don't know if they divorce, but I do not think they live happily ever after. Mm. Does Roman end up doing uh, Dancing with the Stars? <laughs> yeah. Good um, one. Good and, and this one's kind of dark, but I'm dark. Um, does Ken kind of carry out his, like, if I don't get it, I don't want to live threat? Like, what happens to Ken? This is, this is not a yes or no. This is, does Ken go off the deep end as he do something bad to himself? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. He has a comeback. No, I don't know what happens to him. But I don't think he kills himself. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, one of the things that I think was so great is that, you know, we see at the beginning of the season, we see... Logan just wanted to go for a walk by himself in the park. And, you know, 20 feet behind him is Colin, the bodyguard. Right. And then when Kendall thinks he's going to take over everything and he's putting his team together and he, he hires Colin. So that horrible scene where he's like looking out the water and think, thinking about it, there's Colin. And so he set up a sort of prison for himself. I mean, he can always fire Colin. Right. And the look on Colin's face was like, I, dude, I don't know how to swim, so please don't jump over that That railing. <laughs> but you know what happened is that in one take, Jeremy started to go over the barrier and Scott ran and pulled him back. Wow. All right. In character. Pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, we're going to leave on that note. Jay, you've been so generous with your time. I really appreciate it. This was a real treat for me. Uh, I could literally talk for another two hours. I have pages of notes that I didn't even get to, so you'll have to come back again. Well, it's really fun. Really fun, Andy. I really enjoyed this one. All righty. Thanks again. Thanks for having me on. Okay. That's episode 81. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446, email us at backroomandy at gmail.com, or tweet to me at Andy Ostroy. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jenna Mood, Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wind and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, Jay Smith Cameron. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week. <laughs>